you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at laist.com sweeps. Hey everybody, this is Off Ramp. I'm John Raby. First of all, if you missed last week's episode, after you hear this week's episode, go back and listen to my conversation with Norman Lear, the television pioneer, except we don't talk about all in the family and the Jeffersons and all the stuff he did in TV. We actually talk about his war service. He was on a bomber in World War II. It's hard to believe it was in the same lifetime. Sometimes I say, wait a minute, did I really go through that? Holy And about the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. So make sure to check that out. Now, I am a person who reads the labels on records, on CDs, on cassettes. And over and over, when I was growing up, I saw the name Clarence McDonald. And when I started off-ramp back in, when was it, 2006, 2008, uh, I knew that one of the people I wanted to talk to was a name I kept seeing on all those labels, a guy named Clarence McDonald. He was either playing keyboards or he was producing, but he was on these albums by like Bill Withers and James Taylor and Carol King and Nancy Williams and Boz Skaggs. I mean, he was all over the place. So somehow or other, I tracked him down, called him up on the phone, got a message back. Yeah, he'd be glad to talk to me. So I went to his little home studio in Toluca Lake. What are some of the hits, some of the songs that you produced or played on that you had a hand in? Okay, I want to play a bit of it, then I'll tell you the name. Sweet it is to be loved by you, James Taylor. <laughs> Actually, one of the greatest things was that Lamont Dozier, who was a friend of mine, who wrote it. The fun of it is to get to do a song again and know the person who wrote it and have them tell you, okay, yeah, you did it the way I like it. Normally, when you do a song, it's kind of like, I hope I did it well enough not to offend the person who did it originally. <laughs> Sarah Smile, of course, by uh, Hall & Oates. Did you play piano or organ on that? Yeah, I did piano and I think Rhodes. Summer Breeze. Seals and Crafts. Yes. <laughs> All stuff I played as a DJ, I love it. I like that. So what's next? Best of my love, which they're still playing the emotions. You, and you must have gotten a nice check after Boogie Nights, because that song was included in the compilation. Hey, <laughs> money never hurts. I'm not turning down any cash. 
and then in 1977, you did the string arrangements for and co-produced and played keyboards on a song that is one of those platinum records uh, in the office here, Lovely Day with Bill Withers. Bill Withers is probably one of the sweetest guys you will ever meet. He was just, some people just have a good spirit about him. He always picked songs that reflected his life. When you heard Bill and you heard a song from him, it was real experience. When I wake up in the morning, love, and the sunlight hurts my eyes. When you made records in those days, it was a theme. You know, it wasn't like, a, here's a song, here's a song, here's another song. Everything tried to relate. You were, you were telling a story, a 12-chapter story. And the thing that made it so much fun was I don't think there's any really what you'd call fantastic playing or musicianship on it. The idea was this was just fun, trying to be very understated and make a large statement at the same time. That was a lovely day. held those notes for real, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, he did that. Yes, he did. <laughs> I'm still out of breath watching him do that. You know, you got to remember, in those days, there was no vocal gadgets. There was no vocal manipulation. You did what you did. He holds it for, is it 30 seconds? 40 seconds? 50 seconds? No, I think it may have been 18 seconds. Yeah, I think it's, yeah. yeah. I'm hoping it wasn't any longer than that. Yeah, because we may have been good in those days, but we are not that good. <laughs> That's just part of my conversation with Clarence McDonald, basically my music teacher and our music teacher on Off Ramp. We did a bunch of pieces with him where he broke down the elements of music and what makes a good pop song. Those are really great years. Clarence passed away last year at the age of 76. But coming up, we're going to hear him tell us about how he learned music, how he, how he was taught by L.A.'s famous Alma Hightower and even U.B. Blake and Ray Charles. So stay tuned. That's coming up as Off Ramp continues. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at Elias.com slash sweeps. We're back. This is Off Ramp. I'm John Raby. We have heard Clarence McDonald play some of the tunes that he was instrumental in, so to speak. Now let's hear from Clarence about his musical background. What happened was how I got into music was I wanted to join the church choir. And the pastor was very polite, but he told me, he said, son, if you want to get in the choir, you better learn how to play something because you can't sing. With a voice like that, you can't sing? Cannot carry a tune in a safe. I can tell you exactly what to sing, how to sing it, and when you're out of tune. But can I do it? No. <laughs> My music teacher, Alma Hightower, 
I'm trying to think there probably weren't many musicians in L.A., black especially, that did not end up at Miss Hightower's because the other thing she did was she made you learn the theory and the fundamentals of music rather than just teaching you to memorize songs. All of the people that left Miss Hightower's could go anywhere and play, read and play. Among the very first of your, your gigs was playing in a funeral home? Playing in church. And the other logical thing was playing in funeral homes, and I have a funeral home story because it was Angela's funeral home. At the time, they were on Jefferson and Central. I used to come in the back. You come in through the back where they kept the bodies, and you played behind the curtain. And I never will forget, I came in, and I'd walk past this guy, and, you know, he looked reasonably dead when I came in. And I was playing, and you know, people were out in front, and there were funerals, you know, and the usual crying and sadness. And I was playing a tune, Old Rugged Cross, which is like one of the gospel hymns, the spirituals. I looked back, and this guy was sitting up. And I turned back around because I thought I was spooking myself. When I turned back around, he was still sitting up. I came off of the organ. I came from behind the curtains. I hurtled the pulpit and the casket, screaming, and ran out the front door. I didn't know at that time, if you're embalming and they've got air in the lines, a body will actually raise up. So did you get how to play for a funeral at 10? Basically, it was the same thing that happened at church. And I think one of the greatest things that ever happened to young musicians was playing in the church. When the singer got up to sing, when Sister Johnson got up to sing, she was going to start singing. She didn't know what key she sung in, but if you wasn't playing with her by the third or fourth word, she's looking back and she had one of those kind of looks like, what you doing back there? So basically, you first of all started to learn perfect pitch because you learned how to find it within three or four notes of what somebody was singing. And secondly, you started to learn, most importantly, how to accompany people. And I've made years of a professional career because I realized that most guys didn't understand where not to play. So basically, they played a lots of notes. But when it got down to mixing the records, they usually, you didn't hear them. I laugh about that on How Sweet It Is to Be Loved by You with James Taylor because somebody said, I can hear the piano all the time. Yeah, because the piano is playing where he's not singing. Sixty-four, sixty-five. you were playing with Ray Charles. How did that happen? Dr. Hugh Mullins was his name. He was head of the music department at L.A. State. I had gotten a chance to play with Ray Charles, and I was in school. And I told him, I said, I don't know what to do. And he took me aside. He says, let me tell you this. He says, the truth is this. If we could do what it is you're getting ready to do, we probably wouldn't be teaching. We'd be playing. He says, go play with Ray Charles. I'll send you the midterms and the finals, and then you can finish your classes. Let me tell you about a girl I know. By the time I came off the road with Ray Charles and I was going to go back to school, I realized some of the stuff they were teaching was stuff I was actually recording. You said he taught you a lot. Was there a way you would play something before you came into contact and then a way you would approach it afterwards that's different? It was completely and totally different. The thing that happens is when you see someone who sings and play, you learn the economy of playing. 
Most people who just play only think of what they're doing. When you sing and play, you automatically start to approach the whole musical spectrum from a different point of view. And we're in front of your big uh, Yamaha. I'm going to play a tune that he played every night that I absolutely loved. Someone not thinking of playing it as a singer would probably do it like this. you'd end up doing it like this. You find the inner working. Every song has an, what we call an inside stroke to it. Most people hear what they hear on top are the vocalists and they hear the bass, but they don't understand what is weaved in the middle of it. That's what makes the song interesting. See, there can be no top and bottom without a middle. And the middle is where all of the meat lives. When you were a younger man, one of your mentors was U.B. Blake, the, the huge figure in, in jazz piano, early, early, because he was, he was only like 95 when you knew him. He lived to be a, <laughs> 100 and what'd you say, 113 days? Yes, at the time we were together, he was playing well. This was not like an old, decrepit man. No, he was on TV a lot. I remember yeah. seeing him. He was like a walking history book. He could go back and tell you stuff about the 30s, the 50s, the 80s. I, I, can't, I can barely start to tell you how much he taught me because every time he opened his mouth, it was an education. But the thing that was so amazing to me, and I talked with him about that at length, is like, what do you do? What's made the longevity for you? And what I learned was frame of mind. He said, keeping happiness in your heart and in your thoughts is what keeps you alive. You have, by design, right, stayed below the line, you know, um, out of the limelight for a long time. How come now you're, you're deciding to, to come out and do a gig, uh, willing to talk about all the stuff you've done? A few years ago, I had a, it was a serious illness. It was actually life-threatening. And I realized that things I'd been saying I would get around to do, I'd been putting off. And I realized how few days, actually, when I was told what my illness was, which it was lung cancer at the time, it was kind of like you got a couple of months to get your affairs in order. I thank God that through a lot of prayer, a lot of good living, that situation is improving and I'm doing a lot better. But I realized there are no times to put off, do all of the things you think of. The other thing that happened is I got the love of my life and that changed everything. When you spend a lot of time watching your own back, you can't go forward. I realized also it was a need to impart knowledge before you leave. I want to go to performing arts centers and I want to go to colleges and universities because people need to see what it was we did in the 60s and 70s that's missing. We have been digging today into the Off-Ramp Archive from 2009, my conversations with Clarence McDonald. I think we've got more in the archive that we can sample at a future date, so watch this space 
Clarence passed away last year at the age of 76. And that'll do it for another episode of Off Ramp from LAS Studios. I'm John Raby. Thanks for listening. This program is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people.